Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Skander, as always, joined by Jamie. And today we're venturing to the tropical mountains and forests of India to talk about threats to local bird populations, historical ecology, citizen participation in science, and bioacoustics. With us here today, we have Vijay Ramesh, who's a scientist at Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Thank you so much, Vijay, for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. No, our pleasure. Our pleasure. So maybe we can start with uh, a little bit of an introduction as to how you came to this field, uh, what interested you to kind of start this journey into uh, ornithology, into bird science, uh, and also maybe a little bit about kind of the stuff that you've worked on and what you're working on today. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so I'm an ecologist by training. Uh, and uh, I recently finished my doctoral degree looking at how climate change and habitat loss impacts bird communities. Most of my work is in South India, where I'm from. I'm from a city called Bangalore in South India. And uh, I would say that my introduction to ecology was fairly late. I was never into birds as a as a kid. It was it just happened by chance that. Uh, I came across this opportunity online that a PhD student was looking for a research assistant to help him study birds in the mountains, in the Himalayas, in the in the mountains in, in North India. And I said, sure, why not? But I told him that I've never worked on birds before. And uh, if he's in, you know, if he'd be okay with that. And he said, sure, yeah, you can come aboard. And I think I just got hooked to birds when I went there, you know, <laughs> and uh, learned that... Uh, birds are so diverse they can be found across a range of habitat types across climatic zones mm. they can occur in like you know really cold places to really warm places and uh, yeah i think ever since then i've been uh, observing birds more closely as as someone who's passionate about natural history mm. but i think that slowly also got me thinking about uh, the threats that birds face in you know in a changing world uh, yeah, I would say that that would be my introduction to birds. And mm -hmm. uh, slowly that moved on to, you know, formalizing those ideas as one pursued a, a doctoral degree or a master's degree. And uh, I started thinking more about climate change and habitat loss and uh, among other things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you still in contact with that uh, PhD doctoral student that you, you helped out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Sahas Barwe. And... Uh, yeah, he's, he's still a great mentor and we're still in touch working nice. on different projects. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, love to see that. Um, so after, I guess, just going through your kind of uh, general background and, and your path to today. Um, so you, you went on to do a master's, you said a PhD as well? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. PhD yeah. as well. And you finished your PhD when? I finished my PhD about two months back. Yeah. Oh yeah, two months ago. Oh, cool. yeah. Well, yeah. congrats. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I I haven't uh, done one. I don't think I ever will, but I can sure as hell say that it looks uh, extremely difficult and I have to say I have a lot of respect for anyone that can go through that kind <laughs> yeah, of challenge. Sure, yeah. yeah. So yeah, well, congrats. And uh, so what's what's kind of next for you then or what's current? I guess you you told us in uh, kind of uh, before we started the call that you were potentially heading to India for a few months for field work. That's right. So I recently started as a, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And uh, here, at least for the next three years, I get to expand on some of the research I've been doing in, in South India, especially in the mountains of South India. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'll be heading back to India in, in a week's time, thinking more about uh, why are birds found at certain elevations and why are they not found at other elevations? How does climate and uh, habitat play a role in determining where bird species are found? And I'll be using a range of different approaches that includes manual surveys to bioacoustics to answer these mm -hmm. questions. I, I guess, yeah, just following on that strain, it, it, I think it's a really interesting question to ask sort of how do you learn about sort of the environmental situation that the birds are in? I mean, from my understanding, there's kind of like two separate ways to do it. Sort of, a, I guess, perhaps a more traditional historical ecological way to do it. And then a, a kind of more unique bioacoustic way. Could you just tell us a little bit more about 
those research methods and sort of how what you can learn from them sure yeah i think i'll i'll definitely start with the with the historical aspect and then you know we can talk a bit more about uh, our understanding based on contemporary data or what we have at present mm-hmm. i think what's fascinating at least about the indian subcontinent and i'm sure other places as well is that uh, there is an extensive amount of historical data especially natural history data that dates as early as the 1850s and 1860s in some of the regions that i've been working in and i've been working primarily in this uh, mountain ecosystem called the western ghats that's a long mountain chain that runs along the southwestern coast of india and uh, this this mountain ecosystem is composed of numerous hill ranges has extraordinary levels of biodiversity but it's also home to large human populations as well so it makes it really unique especially in terms of you know thinking about uh, uh, global warming and habitat loss hmm. but coming back to the historical context at least for the last 150 years given uh, especially in the time of uh, when british colonized some of these landscapes in the early 1850s and 1860s they also maintained a detailed repository of you know natural history uh, information on land cover information on human populations among other data sets and i think sort of working with that data and trying to think about how the natural history has changed over time because of climatic changes is a really interesting way to learn the learn more about the threats that bird species are facing today so for instance we have uh, detailed information on when and where bird species were recorded from these mountain ranges so we have data that says that on january 1st 1860 we observed a malabar whistling thrush in this particular locality in the nilgiri hills which is a hill range that i work in and so we went back to the very same locality that these birds were recorded in last year to first find out if these bird species are still present and if they are then start to ask given that there's been almost a what excuse me 1 to 1.5 degrees celsius increase in temperatures for the last 150 years how has mm. that impacted where they're present so those are the those are the sort of questions we are starting to answer now given the historical data and uh, yeah that's also telling us a lot about uh, whether birds are resilient or you know they are in fact mm. being impacted in a negative fashion because of some of these changes yeah, yeah. I just want to make a sorry Jamie I just want to make a really quick note that the um sound the the song really that you heard at the beginning of this episode was in fact the Malabar whistling thrush uh so just for for quick context awesome oh, yeah and so I guess moving on to the other method of research you use it, it is quite interesting when I learn about what bioacoustics was because I guess compared to the other research method it, it 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 seems kind of limited in in the in the amount of information it can portray just you know just audio from a particular area so i i guess i'd like to ask sort of how could you learn so much and make you know draw draw such specific mm. conclusions about the state of birds in an area just from uh just from the sounds collected over a period of time right yeah no i think i think especially the 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 field of bioacoustics has sort of opened up this this entire new way to study biodiversity i would say to begin with but uh, especially in the tropics or in the regions that i have been working in for the last couple of years whenever you visit uh, a forested site in the western ghats or in some of these mountain ranges you're often hearing a lot of the birds before you're even seeing them in <laughs> fact i would say that about 80% of the birds that we record in our surveys are often heard rather than you know them being seen so we thought why don't we use uh, an approach that essentially relies on sounds so we started placing some of these small audio recorders across our sites and our first initial thought was let's get a sense of what birds are present here and i think the acoustic data is really useful in getting us that information Uh, without us actually being there at that location and uh, i would also say that you know we able to collect thousands and thousands of hours of data which of course no human can do you know going back to the same mm-hmm. sites for hours at a stretch so there's there's a ton of data but uh, there's also the uh, uh, 
lack of disturbance so you know we're not really necessarily going to a particular site sort of like you know uh i should i don't know if disturbance is the right word but often when you're carrying out a survey i'm sure that there are birds or other species sort of you know uh they're tuned to your presence so you're sort of biasing the data that mm, you collect yeah, so sure. this is sort of an unbiased approach to you know collecting data mm-hmm. but i think what the the more novel approach here is that uh, you're looking at not just species presence or absence but you're accessing this entire different uh niche or perspective so to say so what i mean by that is like you can you can actually look at just the acoustic data and in frequency space and you can think about why are certain birds vocalizing at certain frequencies and why are they not vocalizing at other frequencies or for example why do certain birds only vocalize at uh, the highest frequencies while say the doves and the mountain imperial all the pigeons they're all at the very lowest of frequencies right um but i think what's also been interesting to us is that we're able to now look at the highest of frequencies which humans can't really hear but we can actually mm-hmm. visualize that and see that okay there's probably there probably bats there or there are probably insect species that are vocalizing at those frequencies and it's giving us this dimensions that's that's able to push us beyond just looking at birds alone and we're able to look at all vocalizing taxa which i think is really unique when we use bioacoustics yeah so does that mean that because because you know you have because i guess it's such a technologically reliant uh, research method and also you you're getting sorts of data which is is just not possible to use with the human ear does that mean bioacoustics as a research method is like a very very modern uh invention or or does it does it kind of have a, a quite a long history i i would say that bioacoustics not in its present sense or usage but it the field as a whole has been around for over like 50 or 60 years for for i okay. mean mm. uh, oh, wow. since okay. you know so... people have been going out there just with the sole purpose of uh recording bird calls or you know i think that's where it all started they had this mm. massive uh recorders that they used to place on large vans and just you know go from one location to another so we have de- yeah it's it, it's not a new field as such but uh, because of technological advancements in terms of you know the semiconductor chips and we're able to now have a recorder that fits in the palm of our hands mm-hmm. and so it's make, making life much easier and the amount want, of data yeah. that we can collect right yeah sorry you... sorry sorry go ahead sorry uh, no 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 go ahead i i just wanted to ask actually on, on that technological kind of um, bit obviously over the past 50 years like you said things have gotten a lot smaller uh, a lot cheaper as well but I guess as someone who has never undertaken bioacoustic data research um I only have like what I know to go off of and and what I know is that like very small microphones uh have to be quite expensive before they can kind of give decent uh I'd say decent data where you could like disperse the kind of sound waves and and see and hear different um different birds instead of it you know just sounding like <laughs> like just like this so so what my question i guess is like how expensive is it to do bioacoustics research mm-hmm. and does it um does the technology is the technology quite like basic technology uh, if you can give us an idea of that sort of facet sure yeah i i think uh, at least over the last maybe 5 or 6 years or so uh the the sort of audio recorders that people have been using have become fairly inexpensive but i'm 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 saying inexpensive in the relative term of course it's some of these recorders are still fairly expensive if you're a researcher who's solely based in you know in the global south and you you know you're trying to buy some of these recorders where mm-hmm. each recorder can cost as much as i would say about 80 dollars per device mm-hmm. and uh, and then you have to think about you know batteries and uh, recorder cases etc but as a whole i would say that you know compared to let's say 8 or 9 years ago where we're, we were largely relying on massive recorders that could cost anywhere between 500 to 800 dollars per recorder now oh. you know you're able to have smaller recorders that can collect similar amounts of information for about 80 to 90 dollars yeah yeah that's fantastic yeah uh and so the i guess i think i, I remember reading in one of your articles that 
or on your on your website that you burn through batteries quite fast <laughs> is that is that a big problem yeah i i would say I, just as a, a a caveat that i i think i realized the the hard way that perhaps the way i was collecting data is not the most efficient so i think <laughs> if, if i were to do the same which i'm going to do this coming season i'm going to probably rely on a different sort of a data collection protocol but um, yeah i mean many of these recorders rely on single a batteries and depending on the amount of data that you're collecting you can really run through these batteries fairly quickly so for instance if you're collecting 24 24 hours of data without any sort of stoppage like let's say like you know 55 minutes of data for every 1 hour for 24 hours at a stretch you could perhaps easily burn like you know 3 AA batteries within a week's time so Mm-hmm. uh i would say it really depends on what question you're trying to ask and uh, uh maybe also think a bit about uh use of rechargeable batteries and mm-hmm. uh and maybe memory cards that can store much more data or things of that sort you know what about like connected miniature solar panels for example or things like that yeah no uh that no that's a great point people have been now coming up with some of those and trying mm-hmm. to sort of like you know use given that all the i should add that a lot of the companies that are making these devices are putting all their uh, software and hardware related spe- specs online so people are able to take that and make their own devices mm, and attach nice. additional battery packs like you mentioned or even add solar panels etc uh, i think people are still working on that but there there are always like certain caveats like okay what do we do about the data we still have to go to some of these locations once in two or three months to sort of like download it to a to an external hard drive or you know use a bluetooth connection so but sure people are definitely yeah. you know trying to improve on some of these specs i think probably two or three years from now it's going to look completely different yeah mm-hmm. so project divani if that if that's how you say it um is a really really cool project uh for for those that don't know it's just it's a way in which you can just sort of access directly what a a recorder um is currently hearing for across a sort of variety of um different areas and just shows the kind of breadth of recordings and different locations in which uh these rec- recorders are taking place and i i guess it just leads me to think of how challenging it must be to set up all of these recorders um you know it, how long does it take to sort of i guess s- set up the first generation of recorders yeah i i think it takes a bit of time because let's say for example you're visiting a particular location for the first time you want to get a sense of what's the radius or the the radius of sounds that a recorder is able to capture for example if you're in a if you're in a forested location the radius of sounds that a recorder can capture can vary anywhere between say 40 meters to 70 meters but if you're in a habitat type that's like really fairly open you are probably capturing sounds that's as far as like 100 or 250 meters away uh so we spend some time you know trying to play like monotonous sounds uh at different frequencies from say 100 hertz to 5000 hertz with a playback recorder and sort of like get a sense of what this radius is and uh, yeah i would say you know it, it can take anywhere from like probably like 30 minutes to maybe an hour at a particular mm-hmm. location when you're visiting it for the first time but once we've sort of set up some of these uh, initial parameters and had a sense of you know what the site is like and what sort of data we might collect from here the next time we visit these locations it's it's a matter of you know 3 or 4 minutes of just placing the recorder ensuring that it's collecting data in the right fashion and then you know we're off to the next site um yeah okay and if it- I understand that the the way in which a lot of these recorders are set up is through a a method of citizen science is that it is is it the citizens are participating in 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 sort of setting up uh these recorders or or is that or do they come in at a, a later stage but I I'd be I'm really interested to knowing sort of how they get involved in the process so I would say at the moment we haven't been well we've been working with a number of uh, students to sort of help us with our broader research projects but uh, there isn't as much of a citizen science focus with the work that i've been doing especially with the acoustics data that we are collecting but i want to add that uh, 
for a while now there have been numerous sort of citizen scientist platforms where people can upload the data that they record themselves so there's a platform like xenocanto which uh, was one of the first sort of open access platforms for people to upload bird sounds so it was primarily hmm. designed for uploading bird sounds but now they've expanded to include insect sounds as well so people are going hmm. out there with their mobile phones or handheld recorders or whatever devices they have collect that data and they're uploading it to xenocanto and you know hmm. and people like you and i can just go there and download data from a given location we can see a map hmm. of sounds we can zoom in and be like okay this is coming from my mountain you know some of hmm. my field sites so i want to hear what this bird sounds like here or you know I'd say Jamie and I need to make a day of it and and yeah. do our part for this, but I don't know how many birds you'd hear in in uh, in London and me in Rome. <laughs> We're a bit far away from. Yeah, you got this parakeets in London. It's quite yeah, cool. yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> now they're everywhere, parakeets. Though, no, no one's looking for them. <laughs> um, in in terms of the citizen science aspect, um. I saw that you had worked on an article recently uh, on um, using climate, so, sorry, climate citizen science to parse climatic and land cover influences on bird occupancy in tropical biodiversity hotspots. So uh, using data from such a website that you mentioned, but this one I think was eBird, right? Hey. Yeah. Yeah. And over 1.29 million citizen science observations. That's a ridiculously large number. Uh, how can you tell us a bit about like how then citizen science fit into that work? Uh, what you, it helped you find? And also, how did you manage to go through 1.21? 1. Sorry, I'm saying it all wrong, but 1,290,000 <laughs> science observations. That's wow. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'd love to talk about this. Uh, first and foremost, I have to add that uh, I really hope academic journals change the way they expect scientists to word their titles of their papers. There's so much jargon there, right? Mm -hmm. Like to parse it. Anyway, uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, well, how, the how would you call it if, if you had your, your choice? What would you name it? Yeah, I, I would I'd probably say the idea here was to use uh, data from a citizen scientist platform like eBird to ask how climate and uh, land cover uh, is associated with where bird species are found uh, yeah. rather than say parse occupancy. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, no, I think uh, apart from, you know, some of these other platforms for acoustics like Xenocanto, there's, there's the Macaulay library, which is also a platform that the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has been running for a while now and uh, there's then there's the one of the biggest sort of like citizen scientist platforms is eBird. eBird is a platform where uh, uh, users can just upload their observations of bird species, whatever birds you're hearing, where you're observing these birds, when you're observing them and how long you spent you know uh, observing these species. And India is one of the largest contributors to eBird. And especially the Western Ghats has been one of the best birded regions, at least over the last decade or so. So we have, even from the Indian subcontinent alone, we have over 14 million observations as of, I think, as of last year, uh, just from India alone, that was, sub that was submitted to eBird. And so when I started my PhD, I obviously didn't have any data of my own. So I thought, okay, why don't we use a platform that has all of this data and uh, try to ask questions related to uh, yeah related to climate change and habitat loss and so we used all that data within this this rigorous sort of statistical framework it took a while because you know you have to think carefully about how to process such large amounts of data and uh, what data may not be applicable for the questions we're trying to ask or uh, what data may be erroneous or what data doesn't match your criteria so so we spent a lot of time trying to filter data essentially, and then we finally used the remaining data for about eighty species of birds just mm -hmm. from the Western Ghats, and we found that forest birds are largely negatively associated in with increasing temperatures, which is which is fairly intuitive. Right. But uh, we found that you know we can actually rely on citizen scientist based observations to arrive at such a uh, such a finding and uh, 
moving forward i think citizen science has a lot of potential to you know for for use in a rigorous sort of ecological framework and it doesn't have to be necessarily you know manual surveys alone so mm -hmm. we can use a combination of manual surveys that ecologists carry out along with citizen scientists observations to better understand more about a species's ecology yeah so if i understand correctly the idea is kind of that um this was in a way also a way to check if citizen science was rigorous like I, I guess this this was a way for you to kind of also give more um, backing to the idea of using citizen science through that studies. Say, yeah, in a way, yes, yeah, because uh, part of the data we were definitely able to use, but we also mm -hmm. argued that you know part of the data we can't necessarily use because of the inherent biases that are associated with it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, a user like you and I, let's say you know we feel comfortable enough to just bird or you know so, sorry make observations of different bird species in in a patch that's right next to our house mm -hmm. but uh, and we might often just you know go there and make observations but then we're missing observations from another locations that's just about 500 meters away so there are all these you know uh, inherent biases that are minor but then you know uh, when we want to better understand how certain environmental variables impact a species on a whole we need as much of unbiased data as possible so but and, but to answer your question yeah i think i think citizen science has a lot of potential as long as you account for all these biases yeah and, and just for for layman like myself i mean how because like you know i've my my own research or like my my studies that i do are are uh, much more I, I guess qualitative rather than quantitative and and they also deal with a lot less data uh, how could you just explain it very quickly to us how exactly you and your team kind of go through that amount of data like is are, are there filters that you kind of put on to kind of to parse through the data or uh do you i mean I, i'm guessing you don't manually check every single one of those one plus million uh data data files Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I would say it. It begins with you know like all observations that are uploaded through a mobile app. Often they're just uploaded to uh, the eBird platform, and uh, we go to eBird.org and you know we make a request saying, "Hey, I want all the data for India," and you can just get all the data for India initially, which itself is a lot. Like you know. Yeah. They must be like, "Oh my God! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give me India right now." <laughs> It's almost like, uh, I mean, like, it's like 23 gigabytes of data that's just sitting on your, wow. you know, on your desktop initially to begin with. And then, and like you rightly pointed out, we apply all these filters to begin with, you know, uh, were you traveling when you, when you were making these observations? How much distance did you cover? Did you cover more than five kilometers when you were observing birds? If yes, then I don't think we want to necessarily take that record for our purpose because mm. it could imply that the bird species that you're recording five kilometers away was not necessarily coming from the location where you initially started. So uh, just to give you an example of, you know, this sort of biases. Mm -hmm. Or on the other hand, uh, we try to get a sense of how many observations are coming from just uh, close to roads alone versus observations that are coming from, you know, further inside a forest patch. And, you know, as expected, 80% of observations is happening mostly in areas where people have access to. So they're going along small roads, stopping by the side of the road and making observations of these birds and then, you know, uploading it to their platform. But uh, but these bird species, you know, may not necessarily be found just along the side of the road alone. They may be coming from, you know, 100 meters away, 200 meters away. So, uh, yeah, it begins with the process of you know, applying a lot of these filters. And uh, finally, you know, once we have a sense of what data has passed through these filters and what species match these criteria, we can then run a couple of statistical models to answer the questions we want to ask. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a much more fun and actually purposeful geocaching. <laughs> have you ever done geocaching? The one where you, like, oh, I used to have this little satellite phone thing, looking thing that would like show me 
uh, I'd have to download maps of where these little caches are and you have to go in the mountains and stuff and find them. And <laughs> usually just your prize would just be like a random little drawing that someone made and stuffed in there. <laughs> so for all of you geocachers out there, time to switch it up and do some bird yeah. watching now. <laughs> we'll make Actually, the, uh, the make the gifts better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe eBird needs to start. Uh, I don't know. What What are your thoughts on this? Is one of our questions as well that we had that kind of leads into it. But how do we get people involved into things like eBird? Are there? Do you think that it's a question of culture? Is it a question of potentially uh, working with platforms like eBirds or, or public uh, governments and things like that to incentivize that sort of thing, or maybe just a mix of different tools? Yeah, no, uh, I would say, you know, it's, it's a mix of uh, a couple of different things. For for instance, just to begin with eBird, right? Like uh, now on the platform, one of the ways in which, for instance, the Connor Lab of Ornithology or its regional partners advertise eBird is that, hey, if you've uploaded more than X number of bird observations per month, you stand to go into a lucky draw where you have a chance of winning this amazing binoculars or, or oh. this cool gear that you can use, right? And this this really helps, especially novice birders or beginners who are like getting into the habit of, you know, uh, going out mm. there making observations. So there's this, uh, the platform itself off, looks like, you know, it gives you a place where you can see how many observations you're making, what's your rank relative to the other people who are observing. So it's a bit like, uh, a bit like Pokemon Go of sorts, except just mm. for birds and, you know, like yeah. there's, there's that intense uh, incentive. But uh, I would also say that, you know, people are actively changing, you know, trying to go out there and uh, educating people about eBird and its mm -hmm. use for conservation. And I think it's especially useful, especially in, in rural areas in India, where we want people who are from those regions alone, from those regions to make observations of birds that they see in, see in their backyards. Rather than, you know, people who come from urban areas who go there, make observations, upload to checklists, right? I mean, they know these birds. They've, they've you know, lived here for so long. So mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, just uh, giving them a push in terms of saying, hey, this is a platform where you can make these observations and, you know, you can help conservation. Uh, so it's it's slowly changing. And I think people are doing quite a bit to sort of promote citizen science initiatives across across India, mm. I would say. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'd like to ask a bit more about what sorts of things can be revealed with the bioacoustics research method, because I think earlier we were just kind of just scratching the surface a little bit of the insights that can be gained, especially when you start talking about like the different tones uh, birds can use, you know, it's not just about um, the absence of birds. So I guess I I'd like to ask, um, has there been sort of anything sort of surprising or unexpected or like, you know, especially useful um that you've learned from the data you've acquired through bioacoustics yeah yeah no definitely i i i think i'm gonna talk about the example or rather the study that we've been working on for a while now so when we started using acoustic data initially we wanted to understand uh, how does ecological restoration impact bird diversity and uh in the Anamalai Hills, which is a hill range that we have been working in for, for a while now, there's been active ecological restoration that's been happening there for over 20 years now. So a nonprofit that I collaborate with has been actively restoring degraded rainforest fragments. Hmm. And uh, since there's been restoration that's been happening there for over 20 years now, naturally, we wanted to ask, sure, you know, tree species are recovering, etc. But our birds and other attacks are coming back to these, you know, once degraded fragments. And uh, we thought, okay, let's use audio recorders or acoustic devices to answer this question. So we placed audio recorders there. We also placed audio recorders in sites that are completely undisturbed, that have never been logged and as, as a control. But we also had sites that are naturally regenerating. So these are sites that have been abandoned, but there's been no intervention whatsoever in those sites as like a control on the other end. Right. So you have naturally regenerating sites, actively restored sites and undisturbed sites. And using audio recorders, the first thing we were able to find is that uh, bird species, the, the levels of bird species or the number of bird species that we're seeing 
in restored sites are in between undisturbed sites and naturally regenerating sites. So it's encouraging because, okay, bird species are returning to ecologically restored sites. And we did this all using audio recorders by mm. figuring out, you know, how many birds are calling within a given minute or within 16 minutes. Uh, but the next thing we also did was we looked at the overall, what we call as a soundscape, uh, all the sounds within a given, say, an hour for a given location. And I think earlier we were talking about, you know, how you can not only understand what species are calling, but you can look at this frequency space and get a visual sense of what other tags are vocalizing, like insects, which often vocalize at high frequencies. And using that data, what we found then was that soundscapes in undisturbed sites were just filled with acoustic activity. And I'm talking about frequencies all the way from zero to 24,000 mm. hertz. It's just lit with activity across the spectrum for an entire day. So we, we chose midnight to midnight just as a you know comparison. But the surprising thing that we've been seeing right now is that the restored and unrestored sites are fairly similar in the soundscapes that we compared. There, there are limited differences between a restored site and a site that is unrestored or a site that's naturally regenerating. And then when we started looking at the soundscapes, what we were observing was that frequencies about 10,000 hertz, which are often the higher frequencies where insects are vocalizing, are largely missing. and this is something that's sort of like perplexing us because we're still trying to understand why that might be the case, given that there's so much ecological restoration that's been happening in these sites. But, nice. but to answer the question that you're asking, I think it's acoustics is able to give us this information, which I don't think we would have been able to get at just by carrying out, you know, manual surveys of birds. And now we want to go back to these sites and try to better understand what insect species are vocalizing in a restored site versus an unrestored site and uh, uh, learn more about species that are perhaps much more sensitive to changes in, you know, habitat than perhaps species like birds. Uh, and that's been really interesting for us actually so far. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And um, I remember reading up in, I think it was it called, sorry, I'm just quickly checking the name of the the publication is uh, Manga Bay. Right. Is that it? Yeah. 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 In Manga Bay, uh, you and your teammate had a uh, an article two years ago called "Listen Closely: Using Bioacoustics in Wildlife Conservation," and I gotta say the difference in the soundscape from an unrestored site versus a restored or I think protected area was right. wild. I mean, like, <laughs> like it, right. it, it really. I feel like even just further than as a tool for research, but as a tool for climate advocacy, mm -hmm. this is really powerful stuff. Like, you know, we're always looking in climate advocacy movements and stuff for how to best show to people the kind of um, the, the, the real tangible proof and changes uh, of changes. Sorry, they're happening in ecosystems and climate and things. And so, yeah, uh, this definitely like was mind blowing for me and I'm for sure going to be showing this or using this as a, as like a tool for climate advocacy, because it's really powerful stuff, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No. Does uh, it shock you as well? I mean, I, I guess you've seen it here and there again, but just like listening to the differences, do you still get a bit surprised or? Yeah, no, I, I think, I think even now, like, in fact, some of the sites that you're talking about are sites that are less than 100 meters apart from one another. or, or really? you know, they're, just, they're just separated by a tiny road in between and, and they're just diagonally opposite one another. And it's just, you know, like, I think the biggest difference, at least as an ecologist, you know, visually as well as uh, from the data, we know that the vegetation structure or the forest structure is, is different in, a, in an undisturbed site versus a site that's unrestored or that's degraded mm -hmm. so there's of course you know the habitat type itself that can contribute to the soundscapes you hear but it's still you know it's so distinct that you know visually you can see that you know different parts of the frequency space are being utilized in one while in the other it's totally absent so yeah yeah i'm going to be playing uh for all of those of you listening i'm going to be playing right now the 
sound of the uh, unrestored or degraded site followed by uh, the soundscape of a protected or restored area. So there, I'll just add that in after in post. But <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Yeah, uh, speaking of speaking of like degraded and and unrestored sites and things like that, a hot kind of topic in conservation, you know, for the past several years at least, uh, I guess in in the public eye at least, because I know it's always been going on in academia, is is questions of conservation and human uh, human habitat, right? Like there's a lot of questions going on right now about around how the the importance of allowing people to live in the in their ancestral lands in the places that they've lived in for centuries or thousands of years sometimes uh and the need to protect um to protect biodiversity from further encroachment or from further destruction uh and obviously we've seen time and time again that the best stewards of land are usually you know the people who have lived there for the longest. Um, do does bioacoustics research kind of like hurt itself against a little bit these kind of notions of of um, of people living within those spaces? For example, I'm thinking of like questions of privacy. For example, uh, I don't know if there are questions of privacy that you guys have to face or or work with. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with respect to privacy and, and other such issues, I, I would say that often, uh, one, first and foremost, sure, you know, we we definitely uh, work with, given that some of this data is, is being made public and, you know, we're trying to publish this, these data, you know, we apply for these uh, institutional review board protocols to ensure that a lot of the data we're collecting are uh essentially censored in a way that it doesn't have any identifiable information. And, uh, but that being said, a lot of the data that you're collecting is often, you know, it's, it's very hard to even identify uh, who, yeah, like it's very hard mm. to, you know, figure out if, for instance, by let's say someone's walking by your record and they're having a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, this is often data that's not really being utilized for, our purpose as well but at the same time you know we're, we're careful enough to ensure that perhaps such uh data clips are not being uploaded to the public portal mm. or you know mm -hmm. uh, or such data is is removed of any sort of identifiers as to where it was precisely collected from mm. or uh, when it was collected for instance but but again again you know the the sort of data that we collect right like some of these recorders are being placed in a, in a forest location that's at least about 150 meters away from a road. So the sounds that mm. you often hear are sounds of like vehicle horns or uh, the sounds of uh, certain machines that are being used in a tea plantation close by, but not often of people work, you know, people talking or things of that sort. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess yeah. I guess I'm also thinking of just the the principle of like having things recording us around us. Um, but I, I understand that obviously you guys aren't really interested in that. You're interested in listening to the birds, obviously. But, no, I, but I guess I'm but, just thinking of people living near those places, kind of in principle, thinking that they're still being aware there's still things, recorders, you know? And then no, obviously but, the propensity of like uh, fascist regimes and things like that to be able to to use such things uh, is what I'm kind of thinking of. No, this is no, no. It's it's a it's a really good great point and something that we've been thinking about quite a bit because at least in some of the sites that I've been working in 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 the Western Ghats, it hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been an issue that we've had to think about as carefully as other sites in Central India where my colleague has been working in for the last couple of years. Uh, her name is uh, uh, Dr. Pooja Choksi, and uh, she's she's also a co-founder of. Uh, the project Dwani, that uh, the research collaboration that we started, and uh, in central India, which is largely a tiger-centric landscape, but it's also a landscape where people share their backyards with you know these these large roaming carnivores, right? And uh, the other most important aspect here is that people rely a lot more on forests there for uh, 
things like you know non timber forest products like firewood and uh, mm-hmm. other forest products that they use on a daily basis and in those situations we have had to carefully think about you know placement of recorders where mm-hmm. are these recorders being placed are we ensuring that you know we're placing these recorders far away enough that you know we're not collecting even by mistake any sort of you know human associated uh, vocalizations but mm-hmm. even if we do i think like i was telling you earlier you know we've been thinking a lot about trying to mask that frequency itself even if we're uploading it online yeah. right because yeah. often our vocalizations are between say 0 to 2000 hertz and so you know you just pass a filter to uh, across that particular spectrum and mm-hmm. we, you can still have biodiversity data without having okay. any sort of people i mean yeah, I you can see. still control for this privacy right um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but yeah it's 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 a really it's definitely something that you know we've been thinking a lot about given the amount of data we've been collecting yeah i guess as the field moves on and expands also technologically and things i guess this is kind of questions that hopefully that the field keeps asking itself to yeah yeah no absolutely yeah so we've been talking about the sort of logistical considerations of setting up these microphones the social considerations just now uh but i also like to ask um what are the political considerations of this because i can imagine that it is possible you you know with setting up these microphones, there may have been political legal challenges uh, here, you know, for, and I, I understand if this is a sensitive uh, question, so let me know uh, if that's the case, but I could imagine that the government might find it intrusive or they might have uh, a high level of regulation in these natural spaces, or, you know, in certain situations, they might not like the conclusions of your research. So I was just wondering if, um, yeah, if there have been any sort of political challenges in, with regards to those, I think I think the largest sort of uh, issue or sort of hurdle that we've been facing is you know trying to get permissions to deploy mm. recorders in protected area sites, and uh, it's a conversation that we've we've been having with state forest departments and other officials in terms of you know uh, trying to carry out research in some of these protected areas and. I would say I don't think it's been as much of an issue as to deploy recorders as much as, you know, trying to work through this, uh, you know, pushing through this bureaucratic sort of like wheel, which often mm. turns slowly. So it's been more of waiting for permissions and uh, talking to different officials and trying to convince them that, hey, this work has a lot of uh, use in terms of the kind of work that the forest department is doing and, you know, what they can benefit from this and the kinds of data that we can provide so that they can use in their, let's say, in their visitor centers or things of that sort. So at least for now, things have been fairly okay in terms of, you know, trying to collect some of these audio data sets. But uh, I wish it was much faster in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. obtaining mm-hmm. permissions to collect these data sets. But uh, yeah, uh, it's been okay so far. Okay, and, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's I, definitely uh, yeah. a... <laughs> I, I also want to add that it's definitely a sensitive question in the sense that, you mm. know, uh, of course, you know, I can't be uh, uh, talking too much about, you know, the kinds of different uh, hurdles that we face from a political perspective, but largely it's been smooth. Yeah. yeah. I uh, We've been talking kind of about also, um, we, we, we've mentioned this a little bit in passing, but I feel like I want to try really just quickly mm-hmm. focus on this for just a little bit. Uh, do you, how, how does it feel to, as a scientist to kind of mix and match these different methods of, so like bioacoustics, uh, historical data, citizen science, these are very different methodologies. They, they, they come with very different types of data, very different, uh, types of, uh, of veracities as well to the data. Like I guess where the kind of limitations, but also kind of the strengths of mixing and matching these different techniques and methodologies. Yeah, I think it's it's been fairly challenging, I would say, to sort of, you know, uh, definitely work with these different sorts of approaches, but it's also been highly beneficial because I'm, I'm you know, learning new bits of information that I wouldn't necessarily have got from using a particular approach alone. So, for example, I think citizen science data is giving me access to such large data sets at the tip of my fingertips 
I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, I'm, I'm able to access so much data just by the click of a button, download all that data and, you know, look at all that data across large geographic and spatial scales, right? And, and still answer questions related to the threats that different bird species face. And I think, I know mm-hmm. we spoke a lot about acoustic data and uh, also historical data, especially given that there is quite a bit of historical data, but trying to think about how to utilize it in a rigorous fashion, I mean, in a in a robust framework of sorts that can still tell us a lot about, you know, how climate change is impacting birds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I think there are still, you know, pieces of information that you can't get from each of these approaches. For example, even with acoustic data, there are times where, or rather I would say that even now scientists still debate about how many birds are singing at a particular location or where exactly is this bird vocalizing from or where, you know, what's the direction of vocalization. So for such pieces of information, I still feel like technology can't replace the sort of human surveys that, or the sort of information Mm. that human surveys can obtain. And uh, in that sense, I would still think that, you know, I would, I hope to continue using some of these approaches while at the same time relying on standardized techniques to collect biodiversity data. But in the future, the hope is that, you know, utilizing all these techniques in, 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 in a novel fashion and uh, with, lesser laborious sort of efforts to collect some of these data sets and that's that's the goal yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. all right i think we might wrap it up around here it's been close to an hour uh but uh yeah vijay ramesh thank you so much for the work you do thank you for coming on the show and teaching us a whole lot about this stuff and uh, good luck with your field work in India, <laughs> definitely Thanks. keep us up to date either on Twitter or anything. Do you want to, you know, plug your your Twitter or your website or anything like that so people can find you? Sure, yeah, yeah. I can. No, I at first I wanted to say thank you so much, Kanda and 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 Jamie for you know having me on this podcast. I think it's been fun to talk about some of this research. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know if Twitter is the best platform to plug anymore, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it might yeah, not be uh, there by the time you come back from your <laughs> field work. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, my handle is. Uh, uh, it, do you want me to, you know, spell it yeah, out? Yeah. Or, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, just spell okay. it out. I'll also write it in the description. So if you're listening, you can find this uh, in the description of the episode. But also, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my handle is uh, at uh, vjjan91. That's uh, my Twitter handle. And. Uh, my personal website is evol ecol that's evolutionary ecology dot dot com yeah nice awesome all right thank you so much thanks again yeah, yeah.